Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and served them. This is the word of the Lord. This last summer, there were 74 of us from St. Luke's who left and traveled to Italy to go on the spiritual pilgrimage, going from Rome all the way to Oberammergau, Germany, in order to see the Passion Play. It truly was an incredibly wonderful spiritual trip. Starting in Rome, of course, we went to go to the Vatican and, and you went to go to the Colosseum and things like that. But we also traveled to San Giamano and Siena and then Assisi and Florence and Venice and up to Oberammergau and then finally to Munich where we, where we flew home. Now, Marsh and I had never been to Italy before and we thought that we would love to go maybe a little early so we could see a couple of things that were not on our itinerary and go and have a little time where we could just rest to get a little opportunity to sleep and renew our spirits before you start leading a tour of 74 people for two weeks. That's a challenging opportunity. And so we, we wanted to get some rest in, but there are a couple things we wanted to see. One of the places we wanted to go was Milan. And I told you this summer when we came back about how we went to Milan and the first thing we wanted to see was Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. I mean, I'd preached a whole sermon series on that painting and had come to know it so well and loved it so much. So we had planned ahead and bought our tickets five months in advance to a very reputable company who would be there to take us on that tour. And then two days before we were supposed to go see The Last Supper, we got an email saying, there's such high demand we're afraid you don't have a ticket. We were stunned, and I was incredibly heartbroken, so I started making lots of calls, talking to lots of people, trying to be nice while I talked to these people, <laughs> asking what happened, and finally I got to one lady who was at least honest and said, we're very short-handed, lots of things are falling through the cracks, we're making mistakes, we just didn't get your tickets bought. Okay. One of the results of the pandemic. How many times have you now not been able to have someone take care of you the way they promised they would, not provide service the way that they used to because people are shorthanded? So that was a real loss. And we had to decide, are we going to let this upset us? Or is it going to ruin the next week of our trip? Or can we just let it go? Second thing we wanted to see in Milan was the Duomo, this incredible cathedral. This cathedral was started in 1386. It was finished in 1965. It was under construction for 600 years. This thing will seat 40,000 people. It is the second largest church anywhere, only second to St. Peter's there in the Vatican. And it was truly amazing. It was a spiritual experience to be able to go there. So we, we got to see the Duomo. But then we left from 
from Milan and we went out to Lake Como, went north to Lake Como, and we wanted to go to a little village called Bellagio. This little town, Bellagio, sits right on the water, and we went there because there's nothing to do. There's nothing you had to go see. There's no historical sites. There's no sightseeing, which is exactly what we wanted. We wanted to go and be able to settle in for three days and be able to walk along the shoreline, walk down some of the wonderful little paths and parks that they had to go and see the beauty and to, to enjoy the lake. And so we did that for three days. We just kind of took our time and walked around. But the other thing we did was to go and eat at these little cafes right there on the waterfront. You could go almost any time of the day, but they were busy all the time. And one of our first days there, we went to this little cafe, and, and it, was, it was great. It was packed. We managed to get a front row table that would be looking out on the water. And we sat down and looked at the menu, and we wanted to order, but we couldn't get anyone to come wait on us. I started looking around and realized that there were two women who were trying to serve everyone in that restaurant. They obviously were understaffed as well. And these ladies were running and we waited and waited until finally one came to us and we put in our order. We could tell they have to go take the order, put it in, they'd bring the food back, then they would have to bring the check. They had to do everything. And so we said it was okay. I was wanting to enjoy looking at the lake, watching people. I mean, that's a great pastime, watching people there. And so we just sat there and had a great time, and finally our food came, and we continued to sit. But finally, I was ready to move on. It's not that I had an agenda anywhere else I had to go, but I do get a little antsy, and I was ready to move on, you know. And you finally get to that point when you're eating out, bring me the check. And I could not get her eye for anything. I couldn't get her to come over. And I was finding myself kind of amping up and getting a little more frustrated. Kept trying to talk myself back down. You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. Enjoy the beauty. Enjoy looking around you. You are eating at a lakeside cafe in Lake Como. Enjoy it. And I did for a while. <laughs> Finally, I was ready to go. And so I said, you know, wait a minute, we can figure out how much this bill is. And so we looked at the menu. I could calculate what it was. We happened to have exactly the right change. And so now I thought I'd just could take it over and hand her the change and we can get out of there. In Italy, it's interesting, you know, they don't expect a tip. They don't add a tip on and they don't expect a tip. If you want to leave a little something, that's appreciated, but it's not required. But I got to thinking, you know, if I was back home and I got good service, then I would give 20%, 25 if it was exceptional service. And I was thinking about this as I'm watching these two ladies run as hard as they can go. And finally, Marsh and I talked about it and decided, why don't we give her a 25% tip? Nobody leaves those kinds of tips. So I got the money for the bill. I went over and found her. I said, we're sitting at this table over here. I believe this will cover our meal and everything. Here's will pay for our, our bill. And here is a tip. And she took the money and she looked at how much it was and she just stared at me. And I said, I just wanted to say thank you 
for how hard you were running. And suddenly tears welled up in her eyes and she said, thank you for noticing. Thank you for working so hard. Have a great day. And we left. And as we were leaving, I couldn't help but think, it had been a great meal and a great view. We had been blessed and it was rotten service. And I paid a lot more than I had to. But we left feeling joy. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Finding Joy. Because right now, you and I are living in a world that is so different because we're on the other side of a pandemic. And there are so many things that can frustrate us. People lack the staff they need, the service that we get, when things are promised, things you used to have gotten any time you wanted. Now you may wait two weeks, three weeks, a month. Supply chain issues. Prices are going through the roof. You know, there's so many things that are really easy to make us just frustrated and angry. At the same time, we are living in a world right now that we're getting ready to have an election and the sense of harshness and the way people talk about one another is ratcheting up. The things you hear on television, the news, and there is such strife in the world. It really is easy with all this noise around you to find yourself depressed, tired, angry, impatient. And yet I believe that you and I don't have to wait for all these circumstances to change to know joy. As the disciples of Jesus Christ, we believe that if we walk with Christ, then in the midst of all of the circumstances that are going on around us, we can still find joy. And so that's why this morning we have chosen this scripture lesson to look at as we continue this series, and it's the scripture lesson of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Now it's fascinating, the story, this scripture that Ashley just read to us, is all of two verses. Two verses. Very short. And yet you find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Three out of the four Gospels tell you the story of Jesus healing um, Peter's mother-in-law. So obviously the early church must have thought this is an important story. Somehow it has an important message for us to include it in three of the four Gospels. Even if it's just two verses. So I started really looking at it and trying to dig into it and I thought, you know, it really does tell us a lot in two verses. It tells us, one, Peter lived in Capernaum along with Andrew, James, John. Capernaum was a fishing village. Probably had three to 4,000 people. We know Peter had a home there. And the fascinating thing is in the recent years, archaeologists have uncovered a home in Capernaum that they believe is Peter's home. Now how cool is that? I'm in a house that could be 2,000 years old. It's because of the architecture that was first century. It's because of the thickness of the walls, which would have 
created at that time. The material that was used is the building materials of that time. The kinds of pottery that was found, the writings on the walls, the location, it's right by a synagogue there in Capernaum. All the things that are supposed to tell you this was Peter's home, they all line up. So often they come up with these things and I just kind of think, eh, I don't know. This is one of them I look at and think, ah, this really could be. So cool. Maybe Peter's home. And what we know is they left the synagogue and Jesus came with Peter and some of the disciples to his home. And there his mother-in-law was sick with a high fever. Now that tells us, first of all, Peter was married. If you got a mother-in-law, we don't hear about Peter's wife anywhere else mentioned in the entire Bible. But he must have had a wife. The mother-in-law had a high fever, which was serious. You and I get a fever, we're going to start taking Tylenol or ibuprofen. We're going to start taking antibiotics. If it really gets bad, we're going to start taking lots of fluids and we'll be fine. Not 2,000 years ago, there were no antibiotics to take. If you have a high fever, you had to pray and hope your body would fight it off. Whatever that infection might be, and many times it didn't. To have a high fever, that was a serious thing. And so they bring Jesus over from the temple or the synagogue, and they come in and bring Jesus to the mother-in-law, and he heals her from her fever, and it says she immediately got up and began to serve them. Now, I like to take the Scripture, and I always start trying to look between the lines and trying to think, what is it telling us? What's going on? And I'm thinking, what is the message that these gospel writers wanted to communicate to the early church? That's why they included it. What were they trying to say? So I went over to the next office next to, and sat down with Wendy Lambert, and I started saying, what do you hear in this passage? The mother-in-law's sick. They heal her, and she gets up and starts to serve them. And she said, well, knowing that she was sick with a high fever, and she got healed, then she immediately got up and started to serve them, I've always thought this story was kind of crummy. <laughs> now, i got to tell you, I was shocked in the first service, the second service, and you lined up just like they did. Fifty percent of the women were starting to go, mm-hmm. I didn't anticipate that, but that's, yeah, that's kind of a crummy story. I mean, here, you know, you've been so sick, you get healed. First thing, get up and immediately start to serve them. But then Wendy said, but you know, I've been thinking about it, and I see something different. What I start thinking is maybe this, this mother-in-law, she was so grateful. She knew how serious this was. She was so grateful to be healed that it was out of gratitude. She wanted to get up immediately and to serve them with joy. And I said, that is the message that the gospel writers would want to be sharing with the early church. That so many people struggled and were sick, whether physically, so mentally, spiritually, People who were struggling with all these circumstances would come to Jesus and they felt healed. And it's because they were so grateful and feeling healed that now they wanted to serve with joy. That 
was the experience over and over again in the early church. And that can be the experience for you and me. When we walk with Christ in the midst of all this noise, we can be healed. It adjusts our thinking and our lives in such a way that we are grateful and out of our gratitude we want to serve and that's how you find joy. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Just two things I want to say. First of all, it really is about us discovering again that we are blessed. It's discovering again you're blessed. With all the noise going on around you, it's easy to forget how blessed you are. But you are blessed. Now, I was talking to a friend recently, and she was telling me how she was trying hard to, to deepen her spiritual walk with Christ. And so she'd started doing some things quite a few months ago. She said she really started turning the TV off most of the time. She started reading a lot more spiritual things. She'd committed to having a daily devotional every day. Started spending more time in prayer, reading her Bible, exercising, going for walks. And she said, Bob, this many months into it, and I'm surprised, I feel like God is speaking to me all the time. I said, I'm not surprised at all. That's what happens. I think God is wanting to speak to us. That's not the issue. The issue is we're not putting ourselves in a place to be able to hear God speak. We're not putting ourselves in a place where we see how blessed we are. And so we get lost in all this other stuff out here that makes us depressed and angry and frustrated. I cannot encourage you enough especially right now. Turn off your TV on a regular basis. Be careful listening to these news shows whose sole job is to make you angry. They have to make you angry so you'll come back and watch again. It's not good for your soul. Turn them off. It's important to hear some news. I want to know what's going on in Ukraine. I want to know what's going on in Florida. I want to know what's going on in Iran. I want to know. But you know, you can start watching and you keep watching and you keep watching and it's just more and more and more. Be careful. Are you taking the time to pray? to have a devotional life, to read, to exercise, to visit with friends. And if you're visiting with friends and it starts to go negative, you can stop it. What does it mean for us to put ourselves in a place to be able to hear God and to recognize, I really am blessed. In the midst of all this, I am blessed. When I was working on this series, I, I heard the song, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It's one of my favorite songs. I love that song. And I love Louis Armstrong's story. You know, he, he recorded that song in 1967. He was 66 years old. And when he went to the studio to record the song, it turned out that the CEO of RCA Recordings didn't like it, didn't want to do it. 
and his production managers had to get into a physical fight with Larry and throw him out of the building and lock the door so they could record the song. And so they did. They got the song recorded. But in the end, Larry absolutely refused to uh, help to push it, to market it. And when they cut the song in 1967, here in the United States, what a wonderful world, sold a thousand copies. A thousand copies is all that it sold in the United States. Now they did take it to the UK and it went to number one on the charts. They took it to South Africa and marketed it, it went to number one on their charts. They took it to Australia and it went to number one on their charts. Throughout Europe it went to number one, but in the United States it sold a thousand copies. Until 1988. And in 1988, Good Morning Vietnam, the movie came out, Robin Williams. And in the movie he played the song, What a Wonderful World. It was the first time that the United States was introduced to this song, 1988, in the movie, Good Morning Vietnam. And suddenly it was selling like crazy. It sold several million copies here in the United States. Louis Armstrong had already been dead for 15 years. But it was just as successful here as it was anywhere around the world. It's a song that can speak to people anywhere in the world, whether it's in the 60s, the 80s, the 2000s. No, it speaks to your soul. And if you ever watch Louis Armstrong sing it in 1967, you can tell it's not just a song he's recording. He is speaking from the depths of his being. Because he understands. Louis Armstrong was born in 1901 in New Orleans. Very poor part of town. It was called the battlefield. It's where the poorest of poor were living. It was people who were Chinese, Italian, the blacks. It was a bad place to have to be. His father left when he was an infant. His mother turned to prostitution to keep a roof over their head and food on the table. In the end, he was unsupervised a lot and he would always be out just getting into mischief, getting into trouble. But he had a good friend, this other boy about his age. He was white. And it turned out that his family, uh, the Karnofskys, were willing to kind of take him in. He would come home on a regular basis with their son, and Louis would be able to eat dinner with them. Sometimes he would spend the night. The Karnofskys just started looking after Louis. They really cared for him and loved him. It turned out the Karnofskys were Lithuanian Jews. And though Louis was only six or seven years old, he could tell that white people seemed to look down on the Karnofskys, even though they too were white. And all he could figure out was, it must be because they're Jewish. But he thought, they're such nice people. They're such good people. Well, he kind of grew on up there with the Karnofskys. He did get caught and he was in trouble. And in the end, they took him and they put him in the home for colored waifs. That's where he went to go live. And in the end, Louis Armstrong says, best thing that ever happened. It gave him stability, a roof over his head, three meals a day. He had to go to school. He loved school. And so he started getting an education and he learned to play instruments. He started learning music. But it only went up through the fifth grade. And when you got to fifth grade, 
then you were back out into the world on your own. And it was the Karnofskys who kind of took him back in and really continued to help him as he worked alongside the family. By then he had learned how to play a trumpet. And he was always looking for a place to be able to play the trumpet. Sometimes he was playing on a showboat. Sometimes it was in a club. Sometimes it was in a parade. Sometimes it was at the brothel. And it was at the brothel that he met Daisy. He was 16 years old. And they got married. They'd be married for four years. And then they'd get divorced. He got married a second time and got divorced. Married a third time, got divorced. Finally, the fourth time is in 1942, he married Lucille and they would be married for 30 years until he died. He had always wanted children, but there were not to be any children. He loved children. Here he was growing up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in America. And if you were a person of color in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in America living in New Orleans, it's hard to understand just how bad it was, how difficult racism was, what they were living through. The 60s were tumultuous as civil rights. But you know, the fascinating thing is that Louis Armstrong kind of lived with a foot in both worlds. Because he was so talented and so good, he was in such demand in many places. He was traveling around the world. He played for the Pope. He played for the president. He played for kings, royalty. He was traveling the world, staying in the finest of hotels, eating the best of food, making all this money, while all the struggles were still going on with racism. And he had grown up so poor, and now he had so much. He had grown up living with nothing, and now he could have some of the best. And yet there still was all the struggles with racism in the world and what was going on. But by 1967, when he was 66 years old, he was able to look at his life in totality. Hadn't been easy, but he could look at it. And when he sang the words, he sang them from his heart. I see trees of green and red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself... What a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day and the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. To be able to look at all circumstances and still be able to find yourself within it and to say, what a wonderful world. You know, I was blessed with a wonderful father-in-law, Merle Kelly. Marsha's dad grew up as one of ten down in Aransas Pass in Texas. They were very poor. He was the next to the last born, and he was part of a set of twins. They were so small and so early born that they knew they were not going to live. In the end, both of them did, but they sure didn't think so. And they were so small, when they brought them home, uh, they put them into a shoebox. That was his first bed. He did manage to survive, grew up, got stronger, worked hard, went to school, got his degree in high school, then he graduated college, then he got his master's degree, got hired on by Southern Pacific Railroad and worked his way up until he was a, an executive vice president with Southern Pacific Railroad. In the end, would live a great life, getting married, had three children, 
He was a real man of faith, always teaching Sunday school. Yet he had back problems all his life. He was in pain most of his life. And I can't help but wonder if it's because of that first bed when you're a baby and you're such a newborn. But he struggled, but he didn't complain. He just pushed on with his life. And he lived to be in his 80s. And when Merle died, you know, we found his file folder that said, here's how I want my wedding. And in it he said, I want one song to be sung, What a Wonderful World, by Louis Armstrong. And I thought that's, that's how he would see things. In the midst of all the circumstances, what a wonderful world. I believe that you and I need to start by rediscovering we're blessed. Put yourself in the place to hear God speak. Put yourself in the place to open your eyes and discover what a wonderful world. And so secondly, if you and I will put ourselves in such a place to be able to remember that we are blessed, then we will want to bless others. We will want to serve out of gratitude. And that's how you find joy. It's what happened to Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus came and healed her, she didn't have to get up and serve them. It was not required. It was not demanded. That's not who Jesus is. And that's when you come to understand the real story. No, she gets healed by Jesus and she wants to, out of gratitude, serve them immediately with great joy. That's why this is a story the church wanted to hear, to remind us all when we walk with Christ, we too are healed in a way where you want to serve in gratitude. And that's how you find joy. It is the answer. When Louis Armstrong was older in life, he was being interviewed and they asked him, they said, what's your religion? And Louis Armstrong said, well, I was born a Catholic, I was baptized a Catholic, I was raised a Catholic, I played for the Pope, but today I'm Baptist. But I also wear a necklace that's the Star of David. You see, Louis Armstrong was trying to say, you know, my God is bigger than any one denomination or faith. I believe in the God of all creation who has made all and gives life to all and that we are all God's children. And I said, I wear this star because I want to honor the Karnofskis, people of great faith and people who blessed me. I told you how when he was just six or seven, he was with them and they actually would take coal. They had a wagon pulled by horses and they would deliver coal. And so he got to ride with his friend and with Mr. Karnofsky. And though he was young, he already had this love of music and he wanted more than anything to play the trumpet. And every day they would pass this music store and he would jump down from the wagon and go over and look in the window and there was this beautiful refurbished trumpet. And he'd come back and say, man, I want to play the trumpet one day. I want to play the trumpet. But I mean, he knew he'd never own a trumpet. I mean, that was so far beyond his world, so far out of reach but he's always talking about wanting to play. And so one day they're on the 
this wagon, and they're making their deliveries, and they pull up in front of the music store, and Mr. Karnofsky stops the horses and gets off the wagon and goes into the music store and then comes back out with the trumpet. And Louis Armstrong said, looking back, I realized he had planned that day. He came back out with that trumpet and he gave it to me and said, now go learn to play that thing. And he did. He learned how to play that thing. It opened a door for him that he could not have opened on his own. Mr. Karnofsky changed his world in a way that he could never have dreamed. And it's why years later, Louis Armstrong would start the Karnofsky Project in New Orleans. The Karnofsky Project is where he began putting out word across New Orleans. If you have an old instrument you're not using, if it's broken, if you're willing to get it refurbished, would you give it to us? And we're finding volunteers to try to teach children who come from underprivileged areas and would never have a chance to have an instrument or learn how to play music. We're going to teach them how to play music and give them an instrument. Does it sound familiar? It's so much like our El Sistema after-school program. I mean, they are different, but fundamentally it's the same idea. Can we go to children who would not have the opportunity, give them an instrument, and give them the gift of music? Louis Armstrong has now been dead for 51 years, and the project is still going on in New Orleans. And he would say, that's not my legacy, that's the Karnofsky's legacy. Because he recognized that he had been blessed. And he was so grateful that he wanted to bless others, to serve. And it has brought him great joy. It's what happened to Peter's mother-in-law. She had a high fever and Jesus came and he healed her. And when he healed her, she was so grateful, she wanted to get up out of gratitude to serve with great joy. That's what happened for her. It's what can happen for you and me. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. 
We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.